Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Monica Stevenson, founder of Anza Gems. everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Again, I'm at JCK World Headquarters. I was just at JCK World Headquarters, and I missed you, sadly. I did yes, see some sorry. of our other colleagues and it's always a blast to just be there at that beautiful building and there's a lot going on in fact there was did you notice that gorgeous big cube that's just opened up i think it's a performing arts center right next to one world trade uh no i haven't yeah i just saw i noticed it but i didn't hadn't seen it before i guess because you probably enter the building through the subway this is on the ground level and i was staying down there for last week's very quick blitz through the city when i came in for a breitling event and i wandered over and saw this gorgeous cube it looks and the new york times had a piece on it today i guess the critic was very positive saying this new space and i forgive me i've forgotten the architect seems like it'll really create this kind of cultural neighborhood down there and i love that i love that there's a lot going on down there the oculus is clearly a huge very distinct piece of architecture down there and the world trade center and the fountains that of course represent the fallen of september 11th so it's a very interesting neighborhood i've always really appreciated that our our world headquarters are down there (laughs) yeah and i believe somebody's going to japan if i'm not mistaken Yes. In one week and out the other, I am heading off to um, Tokyo tomorrow morning. So when people are listening to this episode, I will be in the thick of my Japan trip. I am going next week on a press trip with Grand Seiko, which is, of course, the luxury brand owned by the Seiko Corporation. And they are famous for the press trip they do because, of course, they're so connected across Japan. They've got multiple facilities. I'll be going to Nagano for one of their production facilities and then up to the north of Honshu Island to an area called Iwate Prefecture for their design studio, in addition to touring some of their facilities and offices in the Ginza District, the luxury district in Tokyo. But to add even more fun to this epic trip, I am going a few days early and my partner, Jim, we got him a ticket on Miles and he and I are going to spend the weekend in Kyoto. Nice. Yes. I will be gone for a stretch and sadly leaving my my little my little four-year-old who's struggling with TK this this week. So it's I'm kind of sad and a little nervous about my being gone for so long. But luckily dad will be home by Monday. So he is literally just going for the week the weekend Kyoto. Doesn't that sound pretty glamorous? Yeah, sounds cool to me. I've I've never been to Japan. I've been to the airport. Yeah, it's you know, I was just there because I attended the Patek Fleet Grand Exhibition in Tokyo in June and I had been there once before with another watch brand, Breguet, back in 2016, I believe it was, in the fall, and just to Tokyo. So this will be my first time outside of the capital, and I'm super excited. I mean, it's a wonderful country, a wonderful culture. In fact, Kyoto, as I, I didn't realize this, I thought it was on the coast, and because it is near a big body of water, but when I zoomed in, I realized it's actually really closer, more or less on the shores of Lake Biwa, which 
pearl lovers might know because it's famous for like Biwa pearls. Not that I'll see much of those, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll see them in, in the window displays across town if I come across any jewelers. So, you know, Japan is obviously a very important culture for our industry, not only for the watchmaking, but for the jewelry, for the pearls, and just for the inspiration I think a lot of designers take from it, whether it's artisanal crafts like the lacquer and just the the culture in general. So I, I think a trip to Japan is in order for almost anybody. If you like culture, if you like good food, if you appreciate the excellent hospitality. So yeah, I think my nine days will go quickly. Let's All just- All right, you, you convinced me, I'm gonna go. I think you need to go. I think it's a short- I'm leaving but... right now. <laughs> Come on, join me. Anyway, so um, yeah, so I'll be full of tales, hopefully good tales from my trip on our next uh, on our next catch up. But for today, um, we have another absolutely incredible globetrotter to speak to. She is somebody who's I just learned has recently made her 17th trip to East Africa. In addition to all the other places she's gone, many will know her through her incredible work with her company Anza Gems and the ethical metalsmiths where she was immediate past president. If you don't know who I'm talking about, of course, it's Monica Stevenson, a very familiar face to anybody who cares about ethical and sustainable sourcing. So welcome, Monica. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I listen to the podcast a lot. In fact, I was just listening to Lorraine West, uh, her recording today. So I'm just so happy to be here and finally get to uh, get to share my story with you guys. We're thrilled to have you. You're I, when we were chatting right before we started taping, I my mouth kind of dropped open, even though I think I knew from past conversations that you'd spent a lot of time in East Africa. I had not realized this was trip number 17 that you just returned from not not to get ahead of ourselves because we are getting there because you you've also had more trips even since then to London and so on. But anyway, we will get there. Our first question is always, how did you get here? How did you get into this business? And what were you doing before you got to jewelry? So I don't think I've ever heard you talk about this. I'd love to hear. Yeah, it's going back quite a few years, more than I will actually care to admit. <laughs> but it started, I think I hear this a lot in the industry that we all have these like sort of magpie tendencies as uh, children, like I think, you know, drawn to sparkly things and grandmother's jewelry. And then when I was a teenager, my father is actually in the industry. He is an outside salesperson um, who travels in mostly the Southeast region. And he started that when I was a teenager. So I had this exposure to jewelry, not so much in a, hey, this is a generational business that you can enter, but just exposure to jewelry. So in college, I needed to work and I ended up working at an independent jewelry store, really wonderful guild type level AGS retailer in my college town. And it was a means to an end, but I ended up completely hooked. I was an art history and fine arts major, and I instantly recognized that jewelry is an art form. And it's definitely a medium that I was really interested in, not so much as a maker, but uh, just a lifelong kind of interest and passion for it. And how did you get to Seattle? Or are we getting ahead of the story? My husband decided he was going to submit his resume to this little Seattle-based online bookseller um, <laughs> in 1999 wow. um, called Amazon.com. And he's like, hey, do, do you think it's okay if like, you know, they're interested if, if we move there? I'm like, sure. So sight unseen. 
I'd never laid eyes on Seattle before we actually moved in uh, December of 99 and started that adventure. So that's kind of what originally brought me to Seattle. And a couple of years after that, this was in the early 2000s. I was tapped actually by Amazon to help them launch the jewelry store. Like they were going to do a jewelry tab on the website and hired me as part of a small kind of retail business team to coordinate with the tech side of things and launch jewelry um, in, I think it was around 2003. So that kind of blew me away. That's 20 years ago, you guys. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I mean, what was, what was it like working there, especially on uh, jewelry? So jewelry is so high touch and so emotional. You know, there is this artistic element. And I think a lot of people involved in jewelry really embrace that, that kind of side of things. There's definitely this like handshake. Business is kind of about relationships. And so working for a tech company, let's just say that, you know, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite, right? So tech is all, you know, Amazon in particular, is all about being data driven and spreadsheets and nothing is operated on a gut basis. It's all, you know, very sort of technical and structured. So what was interesting is that it turns out that I speak jewelry, but I also speak tech and, you know, jewelry isn't known for being the most technologically advanced industry. I think we're making strides. I think we're doing great. But at the time, you know, 20 years ago, like this was a huge endeavor and I knew it was kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. I worked really, really hard. I just recognized like, I won't have this kind of an opportunity very often to kind of watch something like this unfold. But it was really funny that I was like the tech translator for the jewelry team. So we would have a little meeting and I would clearly react to something in the meeting and then the door would close and it would just be our team. And they're like, what just happened, Monica? What just happened? <laughs> so I was the one who was like, well, the reason I was kind of upset is we just lost major functionality that we thought we were launching with. We no longer have the capability of like two variables on the detail page. And now we're going to have to do twice as much work. And I'm like, really? That's what they said. Okay. All right. Like, <laughs> so I think it was that ability to kind of bridge those two worlds that actually has really helped me, I think, in subsequent projects and particularly now with you know, our gemstone company, like the importance of data and actually making decisions based on not completely gut, but also analytics and user experience, the importance of beautiful images and how do you surface uh, details of a very complicated product in that digital format. How long were you there? Like when did you wrap up your work at Amazon? So the launch was somewhere, um, it's a little bit of a blur now, but like 2003, 2004, and I wanted to stay on and kind of continue to do ad hoc projects kind of more on a part-time basis because we decided we were going to start our family. And I had two girls and at some point I kind of realized like, I don't do part-time very well. Like I'm a kind of an all-in sort of girl. So I decided to take a little bit of a break. Uh, when my youngest was about uh, a year old, I started really itching to kind of get 
back into jewelry in in some way that I could kind of manage on my own time. So I started a blog, actually, idazzle.com in 2008 and really just with the kind of intention of working through my own somewhat unhealthy obsession with <laughs> with jewelry and um, with designers in particular and interviews and things just exploring the industry and to my surprise you know there was some traction there and people were reading and it led to me attending trade shows and interviewing really kind of countless really amazing independent jewelry designers and makers and kind of getting to know that world a little bit more. And eventually I found myself really kind of attracted to stories about people who were making kind of what you might consider responsible or, or ethical decisions in their business. And I just kind of ended up really following that thread. So what was the point that you founded Anza and or how did that come about? Because it's it's fascinating to me to, that you had this experience, obviously, as a, in the retail space, then consulting with Amazon, then you started writing and blogging. And then now you're this incredible gem dealer. So that's not a common trajectory. How did how did you get to Anza? That is not a linear path. Um, who knew that jewelry all those years ago, who knew that jewelry would be such an incredibly adventurous path? But as part of the blog, I was also really active on social media and Twitter was, was the main medium at that point. Instagram barely even existed. I think not until maybe, you know, 2000. 13 or 14. So at some point I saw a tweet about a trip that was going to do a documentary film to East Africa, to Kenya and Tanzania to kind of see the mining side of things. And it, it eventually turned into a film called Sharing the Rough that uh, Oren Mazzoni III directed. And it, for some reason, I saw this this tweet and I thought, wow, this is this is really interesting. Again, sparking that whole like seeing the the sourcing side, the materials side, particularly from the artisanal mining perspective. And for some reason, I just had to go. Like this was some and, and my kids were young. Like this was this was not <laughs> this was super random. And um, to my husband's credit, like he took it in stride and was just like, hey, do your due diligence. I knew no one associated with this project. So I decided I was going to go. I flew 9,000 miles and ended up in, you know, next to a Savarite mine in Kenya. Kind of a crazy path for the girl from Iowa. Um, but what I found on that trip was really eye-opening. And I guess, you know, without hyperbole, I can say life-changing because afterwards I just couldn't stop kind of thinking about it, writing about it, and developed a business plan that was kind of circular in nature. So I realized that I could travel there, buy rough gems, have them cut in the US. And then when those gems sell, I can actually reinvest 10% of sales back into education, you know, community development initiatives that just try to kind of empower the, the artisanal gemstone trade there. You know, the only thing they're lacking is, you know, education, funding, you know, access. And so I was like, in my somewhat naivety. I'm like, well, we can fix this. Like this is, this is, this is solvable. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a for-profit business, but it definitely has that idea of reinvesting back into those mining communities to see if we can kind of make an impact and, and elevate that community. 
This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. One of the issues I've heard with these kind of businesses is that there's a whole ecosystem around these mining towns and mining communities. And it can be very difficult figuring your way in. And even with the best intentions in the world, if you want to do good, it can be tough to figure out, okay, where do you put this money so it gets the best result or just a positive result? How did you kind of navigate all that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Because if you travel to communities like this, and it's not just in East Africa, but many artisanal mining communities all over the world, you know, there is... The reality that there's often a lot of poverty, there's often lack of infrastructure, so the need is really great. And so how do you make sure that you are making an impact in the specific areas that are going to move the needle the most? And also, you know, avoid kind of the white savior, how, you know, how do you navigate this in a way that is truly beneficial for those communities? And I, I think, you know, for me, it's just, it's that idea of really being on the ground, being involved, having direct interaction and oversight. I wouldn't probably just randomly send checks to Africa or to anywhere else. You have to know your local partners. You have to have those connections. And then you have to be in constant conversation and iteration to really kind of move these conversations forward. It is helpful to go back. It is helpful to visit frequently and see, okay, we raised money for solar panels. Now, where are the solar panels? You know, just just that accountability is really important. And that's why I, I focus on such a specific area. I don't source from five different countries where I have all of those things. I'm very deliberate about where I operate. So you've been there now 17 times, and maybe this is a good moment to ask about the latest trip, but I'm certainly curious to hear how things have changed. And and obviously the pandemic was a big, I don't know, I don't know what the words are for it. I mean, I think a lot of miners were put out of work, but you would certainly be more way more equipped to answer this. So what what's changed? And then Let's hear about your your most recent trip, which was with Gem Legacy, correct? The nonprofit? Correct. So, you know, I think at this point I should probably mention that my mission has kind of become more and more about empowering women specifically in, in the supply chain. And as part of my journeys and then just kind of being connected in this in this space in the industry, I heard about the GIA artisanal minor program, an education program that they launched and actually piloted in Tanga, Tanzania, which is an area that I had visited as a, as a gem buyer. And they were specifically targeting women miners who are extraordinarily marginalized. And I was incredibly intrigued by this project because I could instantly kind of see the kind of impact that we, you know, that, that could be made in the region and, and particularly with women miners. When you invest in women, it tends to be really good for the community, right? It, it trickles, it, it ripples outwards. But I was, I was concerned about like, well, 
okay, now they have this education and they're super excited about mining and now they know more about what they're finding because many of them were finding minerals. They didn't even know for sure what it was that they were finding. They definitely did not have access to a market. So I had been talking to Christina Villegas, who is with the NGO PACT, P-A-C-T, and they are a worldwide NGO kind of helping a, a lot of artisanal mining communities around the world. And they were facilitating this GIA education program. So I, I'm like, well, this is great, but PACT doesn't really do markets. GIA doesn't really do markets or commercial work. So how do we actually take that next step and help get these women's gems actually to market? And so we had this amazing dialogue with 50 or 60 women that became kind of the core of this, uh, what eventually became Moyo Gems. And we did our first market day in 2019, and we had several market days which were incredibly successful, lots of momentum, lots of growth in terms of like number of miners registering, the number of miners selling at the markets. They were getting three to 10 times at these markets than what they were getting through like a normal local broker kind of uh, a distribution system. And then I get the benefit of shortening my supply chain so that I'm sitting directly across the table from this woman miner. Now I know her name. She knows what her value is. It's it's kind of win, win, win. But <laughs> this all was building momentum in 2019. And then we had all these big plans in Tucson of 2020 that we were going to go back and do more market days. We did three in 2019. We were going to do at least three or four in 2020. And then needle, scratch, full stop, right? So nothing was happening for COVID. And it took us a while to kind of figure out how to navigate that. But within a number of months, we had coordinated aid through Gem Legacy to the most dire, neediest miners who went very quickly to food insecurity because there's no international buyers. We also figured out a way to do kind of remote markets where my export broker was able to meet with the miners like on my and the other traders behalf and actually buy their gems and put some really much needed income back into this region. So we had a little pause and then we figured out a way to kind of continue the market days. And I think we had something like six or eight market days while everything was shut down for COVID. And now I can say we are so fortunate to be able to go back. And in May of 22, I was able able to kind of go back to the mining region and visit, which was quite an emotional trip for all of us. You know, I was just wrapped in this amazing embrace by this, you know, mining community, these mining communities who didn't have a lot of other options during that time. You know, both me and Victoria have been to, to places like this. They, they can be difficult places to travel to. Do you find that or? Yeah, you know, I, I find it like it depends on your like definition of travel. If you're, you know, if you're a four seasons kind of person, yeah, this is not, <laughs> this is a very, very different kind of trip. But for me, the biggest challenge besides like the infrastructure, and there's a lot of driving on quote unquote roads, which are really, really rough, but it's, it's so incredibly beautiful. Like the landscape is gorgeous. You often will see animals like giraffe, zebra, elephants like on your way to the mining sites and to these kind of remote villages where the markets and the mining takes place. So it's a very rewarding trip in certain ways. 
the interaction and the privilege of being able to kind of see how people live and how people work there. But you also get this like, oh my gosh, like the most beautiful scenery and the most incredible animals. I think the hardest part is just the realities of where they work, how they work. It's really difficult work under really pretty challenging conditions. And how do we make that better collectively? How how can we bridge this side of the industry to the glitz and glamour that you associate with jewelry in Vegas, for instance? Well, you, on this latest trip, there were a number of designers, right? And, and some retailers, I think I saw that were with you in Gem Legacy. What was their take on it? Was this many of their first times in East Africa? Yes. Um, aside from Melissa Quick, who's a retailer in the Chicago area, I think it was everyone else's first trip. And so it was really amazing kind of seeing it through their eyes because it's not not that I'm jaded at all at this point. It is still always an adventure. It is still always an affecting trip for me no matter what. But it really was wonderful seeing it through someone else's eyes. And there are opportunities to go in 2024 if anyone's listening and interested and seeing the gemstone industry from this very particular viewpoint. So we went to Kenya and Tanzania. It was about 10 days. And, you know, you really kind of dig in and you get to see mining communities. You go into actual gem mines, working gem mines. You get to visit some of the mines where the miner toolkits have been distributed. This is something where it sounds really basic, you know, shovels and sieves and some basic safety equipment. But you know what? That's really what's needed in a lot of these areas. And Gem Legacy is very careful about kind of visiting the mining regions and, and screening for mines that really truly need these materials. So we got to visit and kind of follow up where tools have been distributed before. You get to really see what uh, gemstone mining actually looks like. This is not a Disney-ified trip <laughs> in the least. It's such a privilege to get to meet real people, real miners working on the ground, you know, literally. So we just have a few minutes left. What other kinds of questions should people be asking when they're trying to improve their sourcing and trying to do right by these communities that provide us with our, our beautiful gems and our livelihoods here in the U.S.? So, you know, I think, and, and I think we're moving this direction and have been for a number of years, but, you know, I think we need to move beyond, like, you need to think about more than just you need a nine by 12 pink tourmaline, you know, to fit in a particular setting. I think if you really start to kind of make a commitment of these are my values and I'm going to try to find suppliers, for instance, that meet those values and you're willing to kind of dig a little deeper and actually have what can be sometimes feel a little bit more difficult conversations. I think if we commit as an industry to at each point taking some responsibility of like, we can control our actions and and we can take action. And it doesn't have to be the sourcing. It could be how you run your studio. It could be, you know, reducing emissions. It could be using local labor. Let's focus on what we like is important to us, what we can control perhaps, like what is the low hanging fruit and actually kind of like engage on those things. Ethical Metalsmiths, uh, EM does have a guide to having some of these conversations with suppliers. You know, things don't have to be confrontational or defensive. Like let's just try to, to kind of get to an honest dialogue about what we're doing, what we can do and what we're working towards. 
God, there's so much to talk about. We didn't get to ethical metalsmiths or really talk about Moyo or its business model. Do you want to just say a couple words quickly about Moyo? Yeah. You know, um, if anyone's curious about Moyo, you can go to, you know, moyogems.com. You can go to onzagems.com. But bottom line is it's a really unusual collaboration among a couple of traders, myself, Stuart Poole of 1948, Maison Piet, who's based in Paris. And we work with PACT and with the Tanzania Women Miners Association. We also work with AWAKE, which is a women miners association on the Kenyan side. And what we're doing is kind of just trying to facilitate access to markets for women who have traditionally been very uh, marginalized or excluded from kind of market access. And one really exciting development, something that's new for Moyo on the Anza side is that I've always been buying these smaller gems, like small rough from the women, because that's often what they come to the market table with. But I haven't really had a great way of processing those before. But we now have a relationship with a very small group of artisanal miners in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And we are able to have some of these women's gems cut into smaller, either smaller one of a kinds or even calibrated melee. And we're able to work with these cutters to trace the gems through their cutting process so that we keep that minor identity intact with each parcel. So it's been really fantastic to kind of be able to like finally utilize some of the smaller material and also support these artisanal cutters in Chiang Mai and be able to kind of provide traceable melee to the market. So that's a literally an announcement we just made today. So super excited about that. And it's fun to talk to you on the same day that we're launching that. Congratulations, Monica. So much going on and so much good work that you're a part of. It's thrilling. I can't wait to see you in Tucson. I'm sure you'll be there again. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's that's like the, that's the holy grail of the gemstone business. Tucson or bust, 2024. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Always good to talk with you, Monica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.